Well, welcome everyone to the third session of our seven-week series titled, When Trouble Comes. Today we'll be looking at pages five through seven of the notes that you can pull up by clicking the class notebook button that's below your media player. You can see at the top of page five that we are in part one, which deals with the pain of suffering. And in the first two weeks, we've looked at, in lesson one, six universal truths that we need to understand about suffering. And then last week, we saw three key beliefs that will determine our attitudes toward the adverse circumstances that we're called to endure. Now, if you missed either of those episodes, all of our sermons and our lessons can be found at our website. That's cbctrenton.com. Now, today we continue in section one on page five with a lesson that's titled Suffering and the Hand of God. And just below that title, you see that the prime example of God's involvement in our suffering is the biblical character of Job. Now, many of you are familiar with Job's story, but just quickly allow me to recount it, starting with the fact that Job is said to be in the book that bears his name in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, he is said to be a man that is upright, a righteous man who feared God and shunned evil. From the opening verses of the book of Job, God makes it very clear that the things that are going to transpire in the next 42 chapters, all of the very difficult things that take place in Job's life are not. They are not because of something Job did in particular. Job was an upright man. He was a righteous man. And he was one who feared God and shunned evil. And yet that opening chapter tells us about a contest of sorts that occurred between God and Satan. The Bible tells us that Satan came to present himself to God. Now just that sentence, the idea that Satan presents himself to God, ought to alter some of your theology a bit. Because many have the idea that you have two equal and opposing forces out there, a good force and a bad force, and we hope the good one wins. We Christians are rooting for God to win because if God wins, well, then we inherit the earth, Jesus said. If God doesn't win, well, then all bets are off. But the Bible doesn't present these two equal opposing forces. They are quite unequal. As a matter of fact, Satan is a creation of God. All things and all beings were created by God, and so Satan is infinitely inferior to God and is, in fact, subject to God. Satan can do nothing without God's permission. And that's why he presents himself to God. And he seeks authorization in the opening chapter of Job to test him. And God accepts the challenge. God didn't have to accept this challenge, of course. But he chose to do so for his purposes. And the challenge was this. Satan said, Job only serves you because of what you do for him. If you take those things away from Job then he will curse you rather than praise you. Now, if you read through the first chapter of Job, which I encourage you to do, in fact, I encourage you to read the entire book, though admittedly it becomes a bit of rough going when you get to the speeches of his so-called friends. But in the beginning and in the end, the bookends of Job, it's quite amazing. And at the very beginning, one of the things that you should note when you read that first chapter is that it's God who brings Job into the conversation with Satan. 
It is God who calls Satan's attention to Job. God says to Satan, have you considered my servant, servant Job? Hey, what do you think of that guy Job? He's saying. It's similar to when you want to brag about a sports team. You might say, how about them Tigers? Now in Detroit, we haven't done that for a long time because apparently we have no professional teams in our city to present. But back in the day, you might say, how about them Tigers? Or what do you think of those Red Wings? Or how about them Pistons? Now you might think I'm leaving one of our teams out, but the truth is no one has ever said, how about them Lions, in a positive way. But we do that when we want to call attention to and we want to highlight something. And this is the way it's presented in Job 1. Hey, what about this Job guy? What do you think about that, Satan? God is the one who brings it up. And in response, Satan says, he only serves you because of the things you give him. If you take those things away from him, he will curse you. Job is not all that. And he implies defiantly, you're not all that either, God. The Lord takes him on. He says, I'll allow you to take valuable things from him, his properties and his cattle, even his children were taken from him. The Bible tells us that in a single day, all that transpired that transpired in those horrendous ways, the taking of his property, his cattle, even his children, and yet in all of that, Job did not curse God. In fact, quite the contrary. And so Satan comes back to God saying, that's not enough, and he wants to go for more. He wants to harm Job now, personally, physically. You've taken these things, but if you allow me to harm him physically, then you'll see what the real Job is all about. And God gives him permission to do that. But God says you cannot take his life. Now again, who is in control? Clearly, it is God who sets the boundaries of what can and cannot be done. This story alone should put some people that are on cable television, the charlatans who lie to you in the business that has become religion for too many people, as they tell you that God always wants you to be healthy and materially prosperous. In fact, many of the heroes of the faith in the Bible were anything but. These false teachers also claim that Satan is as powerful as God. But the truth is, Satan is not now, he never has been, and he never will be even close to God in his power, in his knowledge, and his authority. And that's why he has to ask permission, which God grants. And yet in all of it, Job remained faithful to God. And at the end of the story, Job's fortunes are restored to him but not before he suffered great, incredible pain. But at the outset, though he had lost all his possessions and his children, and his wife was urging him to, in effect, commit suicide, Job says this in Job chapter 1 and verse 21, Shall we accept good from God and not accept adversity? And then the Bible says, In all this Job did not sin with his lips. That's Job's chap chapter 2 and verse 10, excuse me, Job 2.10. Job was willing to accept both good and bad as from the hand of God, and then to trust the purposes that God has in those things to the God who brought them. So some of you may remember from many years ago, an American tennis player named Michael Chang. Michael Chang was not only a champion tennis player, he was also a devout Christian. And at the end of each of his matches, he would pray and he would give thanks to God. But notice, he would do that whether he won or lost. 
Now that's somebody who has a proper theology, a proper understanding of God's role in all that happens because he accepts good from the Lord, but also difficulty because he understands that both of them ultimately come to us from the hand of God. Now, how many times have you seen a baseball player hit a home run and then they get to home plate and they point toward heaven, sometimes even blow a kiss as if to say, hey, you're my guy. God, you're my guy. We're tight because you let me hit home runs. But has anyone ever seen a guy make an error, let a ball go through his legs, throw a wild pitch, then look to heaven and say, we're tight. We're good. Thank you for the home run, but thank you for the errors as well. You see, the Bible says we not only thank God in everything, but we should also thank God for everything, good and bad. Those who have proper theology do that because they know that in the midst of the good and the bad, in everything that happens, God is in the midst and God is central in the midst, not only in the book of Job, but also in all of life and in our lives. But you only get there if you have a biblical understanding, a biblical theology of suffering. And to help us gain that, we have the nine precepts on pages five through seven. The first is this, that everyone will suffer. God created man and woman with the capacity to sin, with the capacity to transgress. And therefore, God programmed into his creation the possibility of suffering, if indeed they did that as we know they did. Since the first sin, fear and alienation have plagued us. Sadly, the resulting curse has affected everyone, the godly and the ungodly. So no one is exempt. Pain is a common denominator for all of us as members of the human race. We all experience suffering because we live in a fallen world and because all of us are sinners and we contribute to that fallenness, we all experience the results of that fallenness. As I said regarding Job and in the first two weeks of this series, it does not mean there's a one-to-one correspondence between what we do wrong and the bad things that happen to us. But there, in fact, would be no bad things at all in God's world if it were not for sin. Bad things in God's otherwise good world are the necessary and logical consequence of fallenness. And for God to remove all of those bad things would, in effect, require God to say, sin has no consequence. So precept number two is this. All suffering has meaning. Suffering is not accidental, nor is it incidental. It is not the result of randomness or chaos. It's allowed by God because suffering is purposeful. Therefore, our responses to it are very important. Now again, next week, we start a section on the purposes that God has for us in suffering. But for now, we just make the biblical claim that all suffering is purposeful. And then we'll see next week what those purposes are. Some of you may know the name Viktor Frankl. He spent two years in Auschwitz concentration camp. He was a a Jewish doctor, and he, in his time in the concentration camp, was used by the Nazis to actually operate on and help those who were injured and sick so that they could get back out on the rock pile. And so this Jewish doctor had the difficult task of treating patients, Jewish patients, who were being mistreated by the Nazis. And he survived. 
And he wrote about his experience, and he said he would sometimes ask those patients, why do you not commit suicide, given all that you're suffering and going through? He said that as he spoke with patient after patient, that all of them, though they couldn't explain it, all of them assumed that there was some meaning in their suffering. They didn't know what that meaning was, but what kept them alive, what kept them going, despite all the difficulties, was that they were convinced that there was some meaning to it. Corey Tenboom, who I mentioned last week, a Christian, a Christian woman who spent time in a concentration camp as well in the 40s, she said of her time, quote, there we are in God's training school learning much. That was her perspective. Even in the midst of that kind of unspeakable difficulty, if you're convinced that there is meaning, even if you don't know what the particular purpose at that point in time is, but you do believe that there's meaning ultimately, then it will cause you to endure difficulty. You think about what athletes do. Athletes endure pain because it has meaning for them. Pregnant women endure pain because it has meaning for them. And if God tells us that there is meaning in our suffering, and we'll see next week that there is, then that will grant us a proper perspective on it. That gives us the kind of motivation that you see in other realms of human life, in athletics, in family life, and so on. Because God has a plan, no suffering is meaningless. So all suffering has meaning. Precept number three, suffering comes from multiple sources. God seeks to accomplish different purposes through suffering. Some are tied directly to the reasons that we suffer. And so sometimes it's important for us to understand what might be causing us to suffer in order to know how it is that we need to respond. So here are some of the sources of our suffering. Sometimes it's because we just live in a fallen and broken world. Philosophers refer to this as pain and suffering due to natural law. So sometimes you'll hear of insurance claims after a hurricane or something like that, and they'll refer to that as a, quote, act of God, because this world is not what God designed it to be. We're, we're going to experience disease and disorder and dis disillusionment and despair. So that's one source of suffering. Another is on page six in your notes, supernatural causes. We see that in the example of what we've talked about with Job. But then it starts to get personal. They're all difficult, but look at this third one. We encounter suffering because of other people's choices. Suffering may result from the choices and behavior of both Christians and non-Christians. We may be hurt intentionally or unintentionally by other people. And this is where it starts to get really difficult for me personally. When other people do stuff and I suffer the consequences for what they did. Now, how many of you are dealing with consequences that were brought on you because of things that other people did? Whether in your childhood, whether siblings have made poor choices and now you're helping pick up the pieces, choices that other ma others made and you're having to deal with them. It becomes very difficult to get in that situation and to glean what God has for us in those kinds of circumstances because of our anger and our desire for vengeance. For me personally, I've had times when I've been really ticked off at people in my life. Now I'm working on it, so you don't have to worry that I'm going to go off when you're near me. 
and we're socially distanced anyway, so you don't have to worry about it. But I'm simply saying that I, like many, if not all of us, have had things happen to me that are the result of what other people did, and in some cases, you're dealing with that for many years. And I've had times in my life where I was extremely angry because of what other people have foisted upon me through no, cho no choice of my own. So how do you deal with that? Why do I have to deal with that? And I have to ask myself, as I have to ask, ask you to ask yourself, how can I love a person who has hurt me? Love your enemies, as Jesus commanded, is not just abstract stuff, friends. Love the people who have hurt you, some unintentionally, some intentionally. But how am I? How are you going to love them? Well, here's one way, and this is the way that helps me. This is what helps me get hold of my anger when I'm tempted in that direction. When I think about the things that have been imposed upon me, I think about the fact that I am capable of doing the very thing that this person did to me. But for the grace of God, I could be the perpetrator rather than the victim. An understanding of our own sin nature and our own propensities requires that we conclude that but for the grace of God, I could be doing or could have done what that person did. You say to yourself, man, I can't imagine doing that. Whatever it is, and I understand it's hard to imagine, but hear this. The only reason it's hard to imagine is because God has been gracious to you. But for the grace of God, your life and your propensities towards sin could be channeled in the same direction. And When I remember that, then my anger subsides and I'm able to love my neighbor as myself because I see myself in that neighbor now. Which brings me to the fourth cause of suffering. Choices we make. So we should ask ourselves, could I have done what this person did in other circumstances but for the grace of God had I been allowed to go that way? And the answer to that scripturally is yes. And then we should also ask ourselves this, why do I make such a big deal about what other people do and not much of a big deal about what I do? But we do that, don't we? We get really righteously indignant about other people's sin, but not so much about our own. Do you remember the parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 18? He gave the story of the man who had been forgiven much, but was unforgiving to the person who owed him relatively little. Jesus says, Jesus says something very sobering to those who will not forgive. In the disciples' prayer in Matthew chapter 6, he said, Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. The implication is that failure to forgive others means we have not experienced forgiveness ourselves. In fact, Jesus goes on to say in that passage, if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. When we find ourselves unwilling to forgive others, it's because we do not appreciate the enormity of that which has been forgiven us. So think about your own possibilities and potential for sin when you look at what others have done to you and then think about the enormity of what has been forgiven you and contemplate that more than you contemplate the other person's sin. Let me give you some ways that we make choices that get us into difficulty. These are not in your notes. But one is just by simply defying God's will. 
We encounter suffering because of choices we make. And one such choice is just a blatant defiance of God's will. You see this, for example, in the prophet Jonah. God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, but Jonah defies the instructions of God. Many of you know the story. He goes in the opposite direction, and you know what happened to Jonah. He's ultimately on a ship going in that opposite direction. A violent storm arises. He's identified as the source of the problem. He's thrown overboard. And then having been thrown overboard, he's swallowed by a great fish, and he's in this great fish for three days and three nights until he's finally vomited on dry land. My, what a story. Now, when I was a kid, I used to hear that story, and the way it was told by my Sunday school teachers, they would say, in effect, hey, if you disobey God, you know, who knows? You might be swallowed by a big fish. So don't disobey God. Well, it turns out the great fish was actually an act of God's mercy, because absent that fish, what happens to Jonah? He dies. He drowns. In fact, he praises God because he says, I was in fact going down for the third time and you saved me by means of this miraculous occurrence. Jonah was defying God's will and God in his mercy spared him. Or here's another way that we make choices that result in suffering. We defy not only God's will, but common sense. We defy common sense all too often. So look, if you're a daredevil type, for example, and your dare doesn't work out, then bad stuff can happen to you. Don't bungee jump Royal Gorge. Don't walk so close to the cliff. And here's the third way that choices we make can cause suffering. We suffer for obeying God's will. And that's not uncommon in the Christian life and not uncommon in the lives of those who are recorded in Scripture. It's not uncommon at all. Suffering precisely because you're obeying God's will. And that, in turn, puts you at odds with a fallen world. Friends, family members, perhaps even church members, because you're obeying God's will. Here's a fourth precept that we need to understand in order to process our suffering, and that is there is no all-inclusive answer about suffering. There are no pat answers when it comes to pain and suffering. We can search the pages of Scripture and we won't find one verse that completely and fully explains God's purposes for our suffering. So God has multiple purposes. We're going to see what those are beginning next week. So the idea that you have one answer to suffering is a notion that we should put to rest. Here's a fifth precept. God's not obligated to give us a reason. Sometimes we may never know why God allowed a particular suffering in our lives. The humbling reality is that God is not obligated to give us any reason. Now, if you tend to be a controlling type, then that's hard to handle. Because not knowing means you're not in control. People who struggle with worry tend to struggle with control issues. For many of us, not being able to control something puts us in a, a sphere that we despise. If you have suffering going on in your life and you don't know why, and if you're a control freak, then that misery is going to be compounded for you. Dear friends, you cannot move forward in the Christian life unless you learn to trust the heart of God, even when you're not in control of what's happening. You've heard it said, when you don't know his plan, when you can't see his hand, trust his heart. And if you believe you can trust his good heart, then you can trust his good designs for you, even if you don't know the precise details. And friends, let me ask you, do you have ample reason to trust the heart of God? 
You absolutely have every reason to trust the loving heart of our Lord. Now, why? Because you're suffering, and yet Jesus, God the Son, has suffered for you. So as you ask yourself, why God, and what are you really like, God, that you would let this happen? In Jesus, God has shown us most clearly what He is like. And though you don't see all of His designs, or even sometimes any of His designs at a particular point in time, you can always know His heart. Here's number six. God knows our pain and is with us when we suffer. Part of our confusion lies in not understanding what God's role is in our suffering. We simply do not understand how an all-powerful God could sit by and let us hurt. But Jesus, God the Son, in fact knows the extent of our suffering. No suffering has ever come to us that has not first passed through the heart and the hand of God. Precept number seven, God is always at work. God's presence during suffering is like a backstage worker at a theater. It's active, involved, working to fulfill the ultimate thrust of the play, although usually hidden from the audience's view, but he is just as involved as ever. That's why when we quote verses like Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But that good, we need to remember, is an ultimate good. That good is not an immediate good. It's not an instant good. It's an ultimate good. And again, the question is, do I believe that? Do I trust what precept number eight says? That God can redeem and does redeem suffering. Even suffering can have a redemptive purpose. Even in the midst of our own confusion and pain, Job contended that, he knew his Redeemer lived, and Job came out of that suffering better equipped to serve God, knowing his God in a fuller and more profound way. And then lastly, you have precept number nine. There is an end to all suffering for the believer. The Bible states clearly that those who don't believe in and follow Christ will perish and suffer eternal damnation. But for Christians, a time will come when every tear will be wiped away from our eyes. And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, whatever suffering you're enduring now is a temporary suffering. I used to say to my daughter Annie when she was little, in one of our many conversations with her over the years, when she was not able to sleep and I'd be summoned into her room to calm her little soul, and she would just be down and melancholy. She hasn't exhibited that in many years, but she would back then. So I would find myself consoling her. And we had a little box, and I said, I want you to have this box with index cards in it, and I want you to write on those index cards all of the blessings that God has given you. And we put a label on that box. It was called the Happy Feeling Box. And whenever Annie was down, we would pop open the box, and we'd go through her blessings. Well, those were precious times, going through those blessings with that little girl. And I said this to her. I said, Annie... No matter what's going on in the present, there's always a better future for those who know Jesus. There's always a better future for those who know Jesus. And remembering that, friends, makes the difference in the midst of your suffering. Next week, we're going to look at what God says about His various purposes for the suffering that He allows into our lives. Let's go before the Lord in prayer.
Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather in this way. Thank you for this technology that allows us to communicate the truth of your word and communicate the truth of your word about this issue of pain and suffering, trials, adverse circumstances in the midst of indeed an adverse circumstance, this pandemic that you have allowed that has had many effects and ripple effects and the end of which we really do not know. And so, Lord, we need this word from your word. And we thank you that we can then have this time. I ask you to help me to, in the weeks to come, communicate what you say about your purposes and our suffering clearly. Help us as your people to be open and willing to receive what you say and to appropriate your truth so that those purposes are realized in our own lives and so that as a result of the trials that we undergo, we are able to better reflect you back to you, the purpose for which you made us. We ask you to help us over these next couple of days before we meet again on this Lord's Day. Grant us safety, and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.